0: Hello to all our lovely listeners and particularly those who we were able to meet in person at the um, recent Boys at the Crossroads conference in Bristol. Welcome to the latest episode of Now and Men the podcast about men masculinities and gender equality. It's Sandy Ruxton here and I'm with Stephen Burrell as ever. Hi Stephen. Hi Sandy. Uh, Yes uh, we're really delighted
1: to have Gary Barker with us here today. Um, He'll be well known to many of you as he's been a leading voice globally on gender equality and men and masculinities over the past 30 years. He's the CEO and co-founder of an organisation called Equimundo and we'll talk more about their work in a minute. He's also the co-founder of Mencare, which is a global campaign to promote men's involvement as caregivers. And he's co-created the International Men and Gender Equality Survey, which is also called Images, and that's the largest survey of men's attitudes and behaviours around the world related to violence, fatherhood and gender equality.
0: You've been so busy, Gary, really. You've also acted as an advisor to the UN, the World Bank, national governments, international foundations and corporations. Um, on strategies to engage men and boys in promoting gender equality. You've also won a string of international accolades. Too long to go through the whole list, but uh, uh, that's for the groundbreaking work that you and the organisations you represent have done. And if that isn't already enough, you found time to write one, I think, one non-fiction book and four novels, is that right?
2: That's right, yeah.
0: That's right. Well, welcome to Now and Men, Gary. We thought we'd start off by asking you about your your journey, really, seeing as how you've been involved in this work for for such a time. I mean, your name is is closely associated with the organizations Equimundo, and before that, Promundo and the Instituto Pramundo in Brazil. But maybe we can ask you how you first got involved in working on men and masculinities. Was that was that something you'd been thinking about for a while, or or did you have a sudden realization this is what I want to do with my life? how How did it happen?
2: yeah, we I mean, we could spend probably the whole hour just on that. <laughs> I mean that that list of things that you read, I mean, it, you know, I, I feel exhausted when you read it. <laughs> um, but it but it wasn't, you know, th- there wasn't sort of some master plan at the beginning of saying, hey, this is the arc of male allyship work and masculinities that I envision doing. I mean, it just, yeah, it happened with uh, you know with lots of colleagues and lots of others none of that was was done alone Um, and you know when did it when did i become aware of the you know this notion of masculinities manhood how we're made and socially constructed and built um, as physical and you know subjects of these ideas around masculinities You know it was a journey that i the vocabulary came a lot later but the the journey started a lot with a father who's a social worker he passed away last year um, but you know really made his profession and his ethic was about caring um, and really contrasted some of what i saw around me living particularly when we moved from california to texas and saw you know this kind of gun-toting take no prisoners cowboy version of masculinity, which is partly, you know, partly a stereotype, it's partly a caricature, but it's also very true. Um, And one piece of that arc of the story for me was witnessing a school shooting in my secondary school, in my high school, In that was 1977. um, Before we called these things school shootings, before we had hide in place, shelter in place, before we had trauma support, um, and it was a young man with access to a gun he had a vendetta against an individual young man who he alleged stole his girlfriend. You know, and all kinds of you know, the masculine norms, the the mental health issues, the access to guns, the lack of conversation after what happened. Um, there was absolutely nothing. They sent us back to class an hour later. No conversation about what we had witnessed. The hundred or so of us who were in the the, the uh, high school dining hall, where the the shooting and the killing took place. Um, You know, I think other moments at my university trajectory, my own relationships, my um, adopted siblings who had histories of um, victimization of violence from male caregivers, all those things led me first to work on issues of survivors, with survivors of violence. I worked in Central America with refugee and street children and then I moved to Brazil in the early 90s to work with girls who were being sexually exploited. Um, in a joint NGO UNICEF project, and along the way just kept saying, you know, it's, it's. Um, I'm kind of putting myself in here as the, you know, a helper coming along to try to support those who have survived violence, not really taking the moment, that much of the moments to look at my own experiences and trajectories of witnessing violence, and much less my own trajectories about masculinities, but along the way in that work with UNICEF and in Brazil and some encounters with some amazing Um, women feminist leaders and some gay rights activists who I had the chance to do some work with you know they very much kind of pointed and said where are you in here Um, white middle-class heterosexual man from the U.S. who's asking us lots of questions about gender and sexuality um, and violence and where are you in this story and I think um, having a chance to work with some folks who were um, both both, uh, you know, followers and partners of Paulo Freire and also the chance to actually, you know, be in an event with him once as well around, you know, how do we take this critical understanding of the world around us and become part of collective action. And it was a lot of questioning in there that colleagues said, you know, Gary, you keep asking these questions about masculinity is connecting with others who are writing about it and thinking about it. That said, you know, there's a there is something here um Mm. you know and informed by raywin's work and some other latin american activists at the time said there's both a personal journey i need to take on this and to be more reflective and started together with some other colleagues kind of a first men's discussion group probably around the time that you know some of the stuff that like achilles heel and some other stuff in the uk happening so kind of a put on your own mask and do some inner work um, and at the same time, engage with some colleagues to say, and this is political too. Um, and where do we where do we go with that? So it sounds kind of coherent when you look at it later, but it was a lot of just, you know, just lovely opportunities, tragic, you know, realities of of my own life and and particularly those that I have been a witness and supporter to. Um, and then just really inspired by some Brazilian activists who, I would say, you know, made me do this. (laughs) Like, Mm. you will do this, guy. We need you in this space as a male-identified individual, as a heterosexual, you know, middle-class man. We need you in this space, not to take it over, not to own it, not to well, to co-own it, not to own it exclusively. Um, And I, you know, I think that that work in Brazil was, yeah, was foundational for who I am as a person and Mm. um, and that professional trajectory.
0: Because you, your academic training was was as a developmental psychologist, is that right? Is that where you did what you did your Yeah, PhD and that's on? that's is, very that, is that part of the mix as that's well? That's
2: part of the mix as well. You know, first I did the um, I did journalism and then public policy with the idea that you know I'm, I'm the generation that journalists toppled a corrupt president, right, with Watergate and ended a war in some ways. If we look at the Vietnam War, and that was my you know childhood TV news at the end of the day was you know how many killed in Vietnam and You know, U.S. media uh, was a, you know, progressive investigative journalist able to, you know, both contribute to ending a horrible war. It was only a brief reprieve until the U.S. started the next one. But, um, you know, was very empowered by that. And we see a president toppled and watching that on the news, you know, to me, journalists were like, this is where progressive action takes place. So I did my undergrad um, and did some writing, I was managing editor at my you know, big state university newspaper, had some fun doing, had some, you know, I mean, some, some fun you know, feeling like I was a you know, 20-year-old investigative journalist calling out some corruption on my own university campus. Um, so I was very intrigued by that as a profession at first, and, um, but along the way said I wanted to actually be more you know, in some of the action of making the world better Um, So did a master's in public policy, thought about, you know, sort of what policy allows us to do, and I focused on development in in the international development context. And from there, moved to Central America, and that was my my first work with survivors of violence. Um, Years later, as I started to ask these questions about masculinities, I found developmental psychology to be an interesting kind of place to ask, how do we make men? How do we become so? And what are these combinations and i suppose what i liked about it you know and and bringing in elements of sociology and anthropology but that it brought you know both the individual the subject of what happens in our interpsychic how do we develop and think about and make meaning of the world as individuals in a collective you know and 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 structural setting um so i found you know that was a place to situate a question of how do we make men so um and particularly what i i became interested in and looking at was the the field of resilience and and I suppose if we think about I, I like to think about it as resistance which is in the gender space it was so easy to feel that our descriptions of men are this way women are this way masculinities are this way femininities are this way that it felt so rigid um, often as we think about it from a structural point of view developmental psychology gave me a place to situate it around the meaning that we make as active meaning makers of the world around us we're not not to put that into a you know sort of liberal construct that somehow we can, you know, we make ourselves, not not that kind of hubris of of human will, let's call it. Um, but to say that it did give me a space to think about how men and women, individuals of all gender identities enmeshed in these gender systems, still can resist and push back and make different meaning, become activists or become you know, succumb to the impact of trauma and have trouble, you know, being the connected, caring human beings that we want to be. So yeah, I just found it—it it gave me a lens to to look at masculinities with a with hope, um, with a kind of complexity of of the structural and the systemic and the and the culture together with where individuals sit.
0: It feels like uh, all of those elements really have gone into your early nonfiction book, Dying to Be Men, in 2005. You know, and that. Uh, as far as I can tell is is about the challenges young men face in growing up in societies where violence is the norm. You know, you describe um, one of the incidents that, that you witnessed there. Um, but really you were beginning to confront questions like, you know, which version of manhood do I subscribe to? What does it take to be a real man? Um, you know, I just wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about about the book itself, because that was a key moment for you perhaps.
2: Yeah, it was, and you know, that it, it was my PhD dissertation and I was doing research both in Chicago and in, and in Rio de Janeiro with young men in settings of high violence. In Chicago, this is the, you know, the, the racially segregated um, southern part of Chicago where, you know, very deliberate policies said, you know, the African American community could not live in the nicer um, lakefront communities on the north side of downtown. This is where you must live and be, you know, the kind of histories of exclusion there, the attempts of, a you know, a government, a state to, to be meaningful and provide services mixed with um you know how, how attractive gangs were for some young men and also just how actively gangs recruited some young men um, and then the brazilian part of that work was in one favela called mare it's the one kind of close to the international airport for those who have been in rio um also some similar but you know historically quite different but um african brazilian majority uh low-income social exclusion long histories at least since kind of the mid-80s um, of drug trafficking as well, who also vie a lot for the identities and, and the, the hearts and, and, uh, and minds of young men, um, engaging them either as like you vote for it for your team or we actually actively want you to be part of it and we recruit you into it. So understanding young men, and I was particularly interested in those who found ways to push back against uh, the often violent, um, traditional rigid ideas about manhood even those who weren't in gangs, often bought into a lot of the logic of the versions of masculinities that gangs produced. Um, and so I, what I did is spent time in both communities over the course of about a year and a half, um, You know, hanging out with, listening to, following, um, accompanying, witnessing some of the horrors to their lives and trying to make sense of how was it possible for some young men to find different forms of support, different ideas about manhood, what made it possible, Um, And the answer to that is a combination of, you know, life circumstances. Did you have a family member, family members, often moms, often aunts, grandmothers. Um, Men were often scarce because of just what happens to men, incarceration, um, migration for work, because they couldn't feel like they could hold a family steady, they moved on to another family. So the absence of men or the movement of men in and out of boys and young men's and girls' lives, obviously, as well, Um, and it was mostly mothers, grandmothers, aunts who held families together. Whether they could hold the family together and keep a son from joining a gang often had to do with not less willpower and more about what did you have around you? What affordances did you have that you could offer some support for a son, a grandson, a nephew to stay out of gangs? Um, Could you physically get up in the middle of the night and drag him home from a dance or a place where he was where he could be recruited into a gang? Some was as, as much as physical strength and stamina. Um, it was sometimes men in the guise of coaches or teachers or youth workers who could model and show another version of manhood. And then there was an, there was an individual part which was an awareness of, um, you know, if I, to call it metacognition. I can look at how I make decisions and which ones lead to harm and which ones lead to better outcomes. I saw my brother go a pathway, I saw my cousin go a pathway, and I wanna do it differently. Um, And then did you get lucky? Um, Because the other part was that in both settings, about a third of young men had some encounter with with the law, with Mm -hmm. oppressive, racist um, justice systems. Um, Often for not doing anything or often a crime that you would say was being a young black man in the wrong place at the the wrong time. Um, So were you lucky enough that you stayed below the radar of police Mm -hmm. um, and of gangs themselves? so kind of all that combination of both the structural and the individual um so yeah that i could i could talk more about that but uh you know that that was kind of the the headline that came out of that it's a it's a mixture of all the above and if we're mm. to support young men in any setting to step into healthier connected nonviolent versions of manhood you know i suppose the the simple cliche could be it takes a village um, rather than at some, you know, one one moment of Saul on the road to Damascus that you saw the light, um, it was a it was a lot of stuff that mixed together in young men's lives in complex ways to 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 provide those pathways to to healthier mm. versions of manhood.
0: Yeah, and in a way, I mean. <laughs> you founded uh, i think you founded uh, instituto pramundo about that time yep and then that became later on pramundo us and now it's equimundo i mean in a way that's, that that uh, organizational journey is also your journey as well isn't it Yeah, really and I, I wondered if you wanted to say anything about that as well how those organizations transmogrified changed over time and you know and why that was really yeah
2: i mean i had the you know had the good fortune of both connecting with the Brazilian feminists and organizations working in sexuality education and HIV prevention in, um, in LGBTI plus rights, in children's rights. And so, the you know, my, my co-founder, Miguel Fontes, who registered Instituto Pro Mundo as an organization, um, he had been working on the issue of HIV and children and kind of structural factors that led um, young people to be vulnerable to HIV AIDS. And I brought in the masculinities question, um, and we kind of melded a bit of the the community-based developmental psychology, to call it that, with public health that uh, Miguel and colleagues brought in, and really the yeah the focus over over those first ten years of Instituto Promundo in Brazil, were how to build a an evidence base around that work with men and boys with this gendered lens could actually be impactful. That it wasn't just um, a really important political and academic question, but that we could show that by bringing this lens of how are masculinities made in a given setting and how can we promote healthier, nonviolent ones? Um, you know, could we prove that it worked? And that wasn't just a, you know, hey, look at us, this works. This was a, for us an ethical and political question because there are huge demands um, and needs for all kinds of interventions and support and funding and redistribution of wealth in low-income settings like Favelas in Rio de Janeiro and lots of funding needed for supporting survivors of violence, particularly women survivors of men's violence. So as we thought about our feminist kind of gender equality space, for us it was really important to say, does this work achieve something that the really, really crucial vital work that women have been leading to support women survivors of violence or help women stay out of violent relationships, that we need to show this works, um, that this is worth investing in. And so many of our first years were spent doing that. How could we build this into, you know, that ha- have it be community-led, have it be gender transformative? By that, by that we mean it was trying to change norms and power dynamics around masculinities and gender. Could we look at opportunities for scaling up? Particularly, we worked a lot with the health sector um, in Brazil, local level in Rio, but also nationally in Brazil. Um, and, you know, did it work elsewhere? And so partnerships, particularly elsewhere in Latin America, Um, Building a field of practice together with others. I don't want to say we were the only ones by any means. And then along the way, we said, you know, if we're to convince policymakers, funders, the general public, that this is beyond just a small niche of work, we need bigger data sets. And so connected up with some folks who were doing household survey data around well, around gender, um, and said, what do we want to know from men? We a lot of our discussions of men in un policy ministry of health policy national policies is from listening to women and absolutely that is vital but we weren't doing a lot to really have what do we know that men think about these issues and with all the limitations that sample surveys and household data collection could do we said let's try this Um, and a few funders said we love this idea we need this data And again, I would say, you know, as as in several things in in my life, just the luck or us as an organization, the luck and good fortune of connecting with some amazing partners along the way. Um, And what started off as a six country study became a 50 country study over the next 10 years. Um, And really helped, you know, frame a lot of support, a lot of help build um, a lot of work to think about engaging men and masculinities in national policies. Um, And then along that way, it made sense for us to think about um, if we wanted to kind of continue to be able to to lead that work rather than just be a, you know, kind of one-off provider of technical assistance now and then, it made sense for us to think about a U.S. office or somewhere where we had um, the possibility to connect with a lot of the funders in this space and a lot of the international policy-making spaces. So we opened what was then ProMundo U.S and several other partner NGOs around the same time um, kind of spun off of our first work in Brazil. And so we founded Promundo US, a partnership as well in, uh, in Chile, the NGO that we helped support, um, an NGO in Congo where we were doing work around trauma and men in the backdrop of conflict. Um, and we called that the Promundo Global Consortium and had that for a few years and decided at a certain point it felt too much like a kind of a replication of an international development NGO, which we didn't want. Um, it, was, it was spending too much time in kind of log frames and not enough time mm. in the activism that we think needs to be there. So we've decided in the last year to kind of, um, we still work together with all the organizations at some level, um, but the, the, we decided that the consortium model was feeling too much like a clunky Um, big INGO and um, so we decided to rename ourselves and we thought a name that said what we were about in this political moment so we made it Equimundo Center for Masculinities and Social Justice Um, so that yeah that takes us kind of into uh, 2022
1: Mm. (laughs) that's a hugely impressive array of of work Um, and I mean and, and the images survey provides so much valuable data doesn't it really and i suppose one thing um i was interested in, in relation to that i guess was uh, i mean earlier this year i think you released a kind of status report didn't you uh, kind of based on all the surveys which have been done so far um so i was just wondering if you had any kind of observations on like how things have changed over time you know that the survey's been able to pick up on and and also uh, does it also uh, help you to identify how there might be kind of geographical variations in constructions of masculinity yeah
2: and and it tells us a lot about just the you know the politics of it and we may come back to that topic later on as well of you know we we in a in a few settings and and in some of our first surveys we did see that the younger we don't have we have one country just one where we've actually been able to carry it out in two moments in time so our Mm -hmm. ability to talk about you know changes over time is the ability to look at the, the age differences so what do younger men say about it so we can compare the 18 to 34 year olds to the 34 to 50 year olds to the 50 to 65 year olds and that's what we do to look at you know, generational change of women and men. Um, In a few countries there are, you know, some things that we might expect which a younger generation more exposed to, you know, women in the workplace, girls being side by side with them in school, political projects to promote women's rights. In a few countries we see that that, you know, that also has an impact on men. A younger generation believing in more equitable views that women are their equals, more accepting of the kind of policies that we think need to be there to achieve structural change in gender equality but on the whole um, it seems to be stagnant or moving backwards Um, as we weighed together the the 30 plus countries that we now have all the data together unified optimized in a data set um, the vast majority the direction is yeah it's either stalled or moving backwards the younger generation um, has less equitable views about gender than their fathers, and in some cases, than their grandfathers' generation has. Um, and we can look at some you know, country-specific and regional-specific differences. There have been countries where there have been you know, a deliberate move backwards, when I say deliberate, political movements that have risen to power, um, some of them are political, some of them are cultural, some of them are religious, um, that have you know, come to power on saying, feminism went too far, we need to push back on it. Um, And so that part is really daunting because that compares then to almost every country where younger women, if we do the same generational comparison, we have data on women and men, um, the same countries, women in all the settings, younger women, um, have more equitable views and expectations of the world than their mothers and their grandmothers generation. Um, so we have this world, again, this is a big average, nobody's an average, no country's an average, but overall that arc, um, you know, the, the big piece of the story tells us young women are demanding change, they're demanding equality more than any generation has, and a group of young men who are either stagnant or perhaps moving backwards. Um, again, no, in, you know, probably no young man would see himself as like described in that piece, in that, in that headline. <laughs> but, it, you know, as we think about the macro and political forces, you know, at Bear, um, there's a lot to look at and then it also tells us pretty obviously what are the pathways to you know, more equitable worlds. The countries, and I'm not gonna name countries by name, but countries where there's greater economic stability, where there's a stronger social welfare state, where there's been gender equality policies, um, where women's leadership in multiple spaces has grown. Those are places where men tend to have more progressive views just as women do. Um, even with that backlash and stagnation let's say with some younger men they on the whole have more equitable views um, about gender equality so social welfare gender equality policies matter for individual men the trajectories are often about did you have an involved or equitable male somewhere in the household not only sometimes it it mattered just as much was your mother um, in the workplace and have higher education so both the things that we've been doing to try to empower women in terms of education and, and the workplace, pay forward in men having more equitable views and more likely to be involved as caregivers, etc. And it matters whether men are involved, um, not from some simplistic role model perspective, but just that um, if you internalize an idea that men should be equitable in their decision-making, should share household power, um, should be obligated to share household power equally are involved in care work. It's a pretty th- low threshold of care work that's still expected of men around the world, um, but a little bit of that goes a long way for men to have more equitable views as men um, at what, what it means to be men. Um, and then, you know, the overwhelming uh, message around violence was just how much exposure to violence um, drives or is a key factor in driving adult men's use of violence against a female partner in the context of a heterosexual relationship. Um, and how much we just load boys' lives with violence, both what they witness um, in the home uh, and mostly male violence—not only, but mostly male violence—and what they experience um, in schools and in their communities. Um, Sixty to eighty percent of boys experience some physical violence from another male um, during childhood. Es- essentially, you don't get through—you don't get through boyhood without um, some violence from another man. Um, so, yeah, those are, in, in two minutes, the the big headlines. <laughs> yeah, a brief summary of a
1: massive yep. <laughs> piece of data and research, yeah. Uh, and I think also it, also in terms of exposure to violence, things like the media, right? I think you've done a lot some interesting research with like the Gina Davis Institute about how violence is so prevalent among kind of images of masculinity in the media. But um, I mean, one thing as well, which we were interested in, in terms of what you're doing to try and have a, a positive influence um, on kind of boyhood and kind of the tra- transition to being a, a man um, was the the recent launch of the Global Boyhood Initiative um, with the Kering Foundation and other partners. And you've also, I believe, teamed up um, with Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, uh, in the launch of her new podcast, Archetypes. Um, so yeah, I mean, could you just tell us more about this? It sounds really exciting. And uh, yes, what is the Global Boyhood Initiative? Um, where wh- wh- where is that headed in your view? And um, when will we hear you talking to Meghan Markle <laughs> on a on a Podcast, of course, but we think she's probably got probably a few more listeners we, than we, us. So. We definitely
2: have to circle back on that one. Yeah. Um, so you know, the the boyhood work came. It was it was a, a kind of a logical next step for us. We had been, you know, we've spent a lot of years working with our our, our program H and Manhood 2.0, Sisterhood 2.0, group education models of promoting a critical awareness around gender and around masculinities and femininities. That's been used in some 30 plus countries in many contexts together with governments, it's typically kind of ages 14, 15 and above. And you know, as we looked at these developmental trajectories within the images data and lots of other research, not only ours, of course, of just how much early internalization about ideas of gender made a difference, and not just at the household level. I mean, it's appropriate in telling that we started the Global Boyhood Initiative during COVID when we are all more wired than we've ever been (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, I'm father of a daughter who I most days thought that the phone was probably, it, I think it came out of the womb already in her hand, right? That it just felt <laughs> so much like, you know, and, and we all are. I'm just, I'm picking on her, but she's yeah. amazing. But <laughs> we all are, right? It's like our hands have just, yeah. you know, evolved to shape around this phone in front of us. The, you know, the gadgets that we that we connect online and how much of our lives are made there. And we happened to look at some data that was showing just, you know, who were the, the highest watchers, streamers, um, players of any kind of online thing happening are boys ages 8 to 13 in the U.S. Um, and particularly during COVID, you know, everybody started doing more, but for boys, the amount of time there is, is even increased. And so, said, how do we take this to a younger age um, and what would that look like? And we decided to call it the Global Boyhood Initiative, one, because we were already beginning this research in a few countries. Um, and we didn't come up with any other you know it just it, it was kind of the best descriptor of what we we're trying to do with it that it is about boyhood not about boys and I'll <laughs> what do I mean by that it's not that we're excluding boys by any means it is about boys <laughs> but it is about changing how we make the you know the the world for boyhood and but really to say healthy manhood connected nonviolent versions non-dominating virgins non-patriarchal versions of manhood, the roots of them don't just happen when we step into all the harm of adolescence. They start from the first notions that we have of how we internalize, make sense of, what the world affords us in terms of the space provided to be boys and to be girls. Um, and so that's where the idea came from. And it, it is also inspired by, let me you know, give credit to Salma Hayek, um, American actor, she herself was vocal about the abuse she faced from harvey weinstein Um, she has led the foundation itself uh, the caring foundation um, in focusing on gender-based violence and she said we absolutely need men here it's not just me and others calling out harvey harvey weinstein what are you doing on this and why aren't you starting earlier Um, and we took that provocation as a you know kind of a but a support that yeah we were beginning to think about that and they wanted to be full on partners with it, which um, was exciting for us. So they plan international is part of it. Um, Gillette, which you may remember all the stuff they've been talking about boyhood and their, their ad, they've been doing some work both, you know, visibly and behind the scenes in the past years, continuing to support some meaningful work around healthy boyhood and healthy manhood. Um, And Gillette's parent company, P and G has been a, um, a supporter of the R12 foundation and they connected up, Connected us with Meghan Markle and their their staff there, um, who are also quite committed that men have a meaningful role around uh, around being part of the gender equality journey in the world. Um, so yeah, those are you know we're we're excited about those partnerships and I think it pushes us to think kind of outside of our usual activist research spaces. We spend a lot of time you know talking to others like us, and I think it's been really good for us as a staff to say what you know the these are corporations in the space we there's some things they do that we agree with some things they don't Um, but we do perceive that we can find ways to be partners on overcoming patriarchy we don't think at any moment we've had to silence anything that we believe about a a more economically just um, as well as a more gender just world so they've been interesting journeys
1: Yeah, and I mean, mean, quite a few of the things you've said so far, including your work with boys and young men, I suppose, touches upon um, what has been termed by some as kind of caring masculinities, uh, used, for example, by Niall Hanlon in 2012 in his study on the caring activities of Irish men. Um, so I suppose we were just wondering like, what do you understand by that phrase? And, um, you know, do you find that to be a useful concept? I mean, is that what you're kind of working towards ultimately with things like the Men Care campaign, yeah. for
2: example? And, you know, yeah, we're both inspired by, you know, by that work and others. Some of it that started in the fatherhood space, right? There's been a lot of social service programming and research in the, you know, developmental space and many other spaces around fathers. We um, we launched the the Men Care campaign in 2011, um, partly, I mean, in, in some ways, I would say it's a, like a studied act of desperation, which is, um, you know, it's been, I mean, one, there's been, it's been such a contentious conversation in many countries to talk about healthy masculinities, even to question masculinities. I mean, it is, you know, it's, it is a political and politicized space, often polarized. Um, and the other challenge, of course, has been to get, you know, individual men to actually want to have the conversation. Um, and to be in the room to talk about power and privilege and violence and our own lives, um, in, in our own lives and how, you know, and, and, and in the lives of others that we impact with our use of uh, harm and violence. And um, fatherhood and men's caregiving felt like it was a better, no, you know, whatever the right word is, the better aspiration than simply to say, we would like you to live a life free of violence. And even equality. As much as it is, you know, the the our goal at the end of at the end of it, um, does not for men feel like something that resonated in their daily lives? That's a problem. Um, but caring felt like it did give us something that men, you know, the vast majority of men in the world aspire to be, um, and and that it, you know, in some ways, if I think about how we as humans, you know, interact and in who we are and what we need to thrive and survive, it's what makes us thrive and survive. It's if if there's anything that you would push me and say could you say this is essentially human in an essentialist way i'd say well it's our ability to care for each other um, in really complex long ways because we're these really fragile creatures when we're born and we need longer amounts of care and our big brains mean that we need you know to be supported with lots of stuff to internalize our cultures and our and the ways we interact caring is you know what ultimately makes us good humans um so it just felt like you know i think the gendered nature of how we divide care. And, and said this a long time ago around the, you know, how we make the gender binary when we say, you know, women care for homes, bodies, and children, and men go off and do all the rest of the stuff. I mean, we can almost, you know, if, if there's some plaque that could be established to the beginning of patriarchy and the gender binary, it is on that division where it, where it sits. And so this felt to us like, you know, it's strategic, it's political, it is a root of so much of the unchanging gender inequality, and lo and behold, most men see it as a good thing. Um, so we've been, you know, I think it's been an 11-year journey of saying that in different ways, doing our State of the World's Father's Report, trying to learn from the, you know, and and, and I also want to say we didn't invent the, you know, there's been lots of folks working on the caregiving, the men and care, you know, caring masculinities, caring men, the caregiving space, thoughtful work on fatherhood that, um, you know, partly we set up Men Care to say we want to learn from this stuff and share what, you know, and amplify what many groups already do um, and really try to create a, you know, a a learning network and exchange network around it. And then, you know, created the state of the world's father's report as a way to call some global attention to it. But even more interesting to me is the country reports, Um, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, Republic of Georgia, um, Portugal, um, you know, the number of countries that have done country reports and used those for conversations um, with policy makers and media content makers around how do we promote caring masculinities. Um, and that one, f- you know, it, 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 it's resonated and I'm um, really excited with the way it continues to grow and the number of new partners who gravitate to it and take it over and, in good ways.
0: And that discussion of of care there, I mean, that links to you know a whole feminist analysis of care and what care is about, doesn't it? I mean, you know, Jean Tronto's work about is it um, caring about or is it caring for or is it care giving or care receiving? Yeah, you know, there's a huge literature around that. Exactly. And you also made me think made me think of the COVID time as well in a way. Yeah, you know that care became so central then. I mean, I don't know whether we're slipping back to the old normal, but but actually that was that was a huge part of yeah. what we've all been through globally.
2: Yeah. And both politically, you know, I think we have tried to be attuned, dialogue with, you know, Sandy, you've been part of those conversations, Nikki Vandegog, fantastic on many of those conversations as well of, you know, making sure that as we, it, it's, you know, it's often easy for men in the space of kind of seeing the seeing the power and the personal transformation coming about by doing more care work that we kind of feel like we invented it, right? That's the the, the masculine hubris will often step in and go yes we invented this now like, you know now we've <laughs> we own care um, and to you know to try to center it and say you know let's let's look at the care we all need let's look at the feminist analysis let's look at the fact that women around the world still do more than three times of it it is still you know among the most underpaid professions we don't you know and so to keep that political edge to it while we want men to feel their personal connection to it um, so really trying you know I think our our best partnerships, the most meaningful and necessary partnerships with that work have been with the women's rights advocates who have been calling for it and, you know, who in, in a sense during COVID, you know, we were all going, wow, look how important care was. I think, you know, they were saying, hey, we already knew it was. It always was. Yes. Um, you, you just don't pay attention to how much your lives and bodies and in fact, your income is, you know, men is dependent on this care every single day. So we're glad you see this, boys. Uh, now that we're looking at COVID, but we have been paying attention to this for many, many years. Um,
1: <laughs> and and you've, you've mentioned kind of a few times about politics, and I suppose perhaps we wanted to ask you about that a bit more directly, because it's impossible to, you know, given that you're living in the US, it's impossible not to discuss it really, isn't it, with so much that's been going on over there. And obviously, uh, very soon it's the midterm elections as well isn't it in, in the US and of course we've seen such political turmoil also here in the UK it should be said <laughs> but we'll focus on we'll focus on the US for that. Yeah, nope. um, we have our own know, problems uh, <laughs> yes for sure for sure but yeah, I mean, things like you know, threats to democracy, the Capitol Hill attack, uh, the rolling back of abortion rights, uh, ever increasing toll from gun violence, which connects to your own personal experience as well. Um, and a lot of these issues clearly have a lot to do with, with masculinity. Um, so I suppose we're, we're just wondering really, like how do you feel about the situation in the US currently? I mean, are you really concerned about the direction that politics is going in over there right now? Or do you see kind of opportunities for hope and for change as well still?
2: Oh Steven, it's a Friday and you had to bring up this topic. Oh my I'm sorry. God. I'm sorry. Oh my God. Where do we begin? Well and, and I'll add to that, I you know, I'm in a Brazilian US household. Um, where yes. my partner's Brazilian, our daughter's from both countries. Two members of our household well, one member votes in both countries, two of us just vote in one of our countries of our passports. <laughs> um, but all to say, yeah, we've been living, you know, very clearly what's hap- happening in Brazil as well as what's happening in the U.S. Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I live whatever th- uh, five kilometers from the epicenter of January sixth, and wow. um, have, you know, I mean, both, yeah, just have, uh, have was was at, you know, the march for Black Lives Matter when. Um, Trump had troops ringed around the White House and tear gas, and the helicopters, and led by my um, my adult daughter, my 23-year-old, you know, what was he then, 22-year-old daughter at the time, um, of saying, "Dad, we're going here. This is where we, you know, we are, we are going here," and, and instructing me on how to be prepared for tear gas and the rest, um, you know, of a, of saying, wow, this, we, are, we still have to do this kind of marching. Um, I was at the Women's March right after Trump's inauguration and feeling the power of women's voices there. Um, at the same time, you know, just the desperation we feel and the midterm elections are quite frightening. And it has been white men with less than university education who are Trump's voters, women too, frightening the number of Hispanic and African-American voters that Trump also gets. Um, so you know, regardless of the outcome in November, um, manhood has been weaponized in the middle of this. We've got Josh Hawley as a senator writing a book because he's afraid that those of us on the progressive side are destroying American manhood. Um, I might sometimes say he's right, so he's got a right to be <laughs> frightened, but he doesn't realize the, the flip side of this, which is that this is good for all of us. Um, and we've been trying to engage, you know, there's some really, really thoughtful activists and, and writers on this topic, um, thinking about, you know, how do we pull back from this, um, this kind of fractured state that we're in, and pull masculinities out as a weapon, because it really, really traditional, harmful, restrictive, violent views of masculinities are so much being used, you know, they're they're part of the of the arsenal that the far right is using. Um, we're beginning some new research on it. We're engaging with some feminist activist groups. We're looking with some of the groups that look at hate expression online, and trying to say what can we do. We want to be—we are very alarmed. We want to be able to call it the harm, but also trying to—you know—I don't—I don't think it's enough to be alarmed. We've got to figure out what is it that's leading men to be Trump voters, to be Bolsonaro voters. What is the economic uncertainty? What is the the way that we consume media, the way that we get ourselves in our own bubbles and end up only knowing people who think and act and talk like us. Um, what, is the, what have we achieved with the feminist agenda that we've not done in a structural way that men perceive themselves as invested in it? Do they see it as an, an, as an agenda against them or with them? Do we revert to zero-sum policies Um, on the left and on the right. And I think we also have to hold ourselves to account as on the progressive side of what are we doing about how we present our message. Um, And I'm I'm intrigued by, you know, the intrigued inspired by the Me Too moment and the Me Too movement. Had a chance to hear Toronto Burke speak in a couple of occasions and she and that, all of that work is inspiring and it energizes what we do and you know, and what we want to support in terms of the women who have led this work, and she said, I never expected we'd have an impact in a few years. This is a decades-long battle that we're going to be in. And I think when I get helpless and hopeless on a Friday afternoon of what can we do about this, um, is to keep, you know, to keep that in mind. Um, The women who led this work, the women of color, the marginalized voices who, um, at least in my country, if I look at, at Black Lives Matter and I look at Me Too of the last years, and they them you know, those movements both represent decades of activism and of so many voices of just to say, it's not just this November election. You know, I, I may be celebrating or I may be lamenting, but the, yeah, the, this battle's going to go on. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know on this Friday morning, afternoon, if I would say I'm optimistic or not, but. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll remember my daughter who, when Trump won and we said, ah, oh, let's move back to Brazil, and she said, Dad, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't run, we stay and fight. Hmm. So, yeah, the, 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 well, uh, <laughs> the wisest at, words I heard in the last years. Um,
0: at risk of ruining your whole weekend. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, you know, what's been happening in Brazil. And, of course, you I think you lived there for, yeah, for pretty much 20 years, years yeah, yeah. or 15 years, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it'd be interesting just to just get your view on that. I mean, obviously, the rise of Bolsonaro, uh, his masculinized posturing, his family corruption, right-wing populism, evangelical support, destruction of the Amazon. You can go on and on with this stuff, you know. Yeah. And it feels like some of some of his story is actually precursor to the Trump story as well you know, and and deeply frightening for the, both the people there and the whole, whole yeah, world, well that, really. Um, We're all depending that, on the Amazon's future well, and exactly. so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, just as, you know, what the U.S. pollutes by, you know, not taking climate change seriously. We seem to be doing something moving in the right direction on that. Brazil, not so much. Um, yeah, no, these playbooks, you know, this is part of globalization is the playbooks uh, go back and forth. And folks like Stephen Bannon travel to both places and share their ideas and they... You know, the, the kinds of stuff that we do on the progressive side of exchanging ideas, they're doing with a lot more money than we do. I mean, they, you know, Orban cha- exchanges ideas with Modi, who's, you know, press people get ideas from Bolsonaro. And so, you know, that that globalized world has led us to lots of feminist activism that we can also do. But it also is, the far right is probably better at it than we are, um, or can be at times. Um, so yeah, it's, it's frightening how, like, you can, it, it, it becomes so obvious, right? That I mean, the scripts just are so interchangeable. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, that's the same. TV, you know, that's the same made-for-TV drama. You've just changed the names of the characters, and but the you know the, the stories are so similar. Um, hmm. And you know, kind of playing up into the edge, and then they call back. Well, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't really mean to exterminate all of them. But you know, the, the kind of the, the rhetorical flourishes. The, the playing on fear, um, the seeing that they get, you know, more votes, the more they play on fear, um, the, you know, the appealing to the the frightened lower and middle class that doesn't really see where, you know, economically, where we headed? So they both enact the policies that cause the economic shocks, and then they benefit with votes by saying, look, we're the only ones who can protect you from this chaotic world. Um, yeah, let us... Go yeah, somewhere you, else.
0: You're ruining my week. My weekend I'm sorry. also now. You started it. You started <laughs> it.
2: <laughs>
0: okay, let, let's turn to something else. We're coming close to the end now. Anyway, I mean, I mentioned at the start that you, you've actually written, I think, four novels, which have all been set in very different locations. You know, you wrote the Afghan Va- Vampires Club with your friend and fellow activist um, Michael Kaufman. You've written uh, Mary of Kivu about the conflict in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. But also, you've written uh, the Museum of Lost Love, which I think was which brings together a number of strands, including the war in former U- Yugoslavia. Um, I mean, I wondered how you saw the relationship between you know what you're writing about as fiction, and you know the professional work that you do. Yeah. What is that relationship about? And
2: I mean, yeah, yeah. fiction came about. You know, s- smarter people go to therapy. I, I decided to to write you know stories that that in some ways were you know doing work. The, the work with men and masculinities requires listening to some of the um, yeah really horrible stories of of harm of hurt of violence used um and i've had you know the good fortune and and to to work in uh, some amazing settings with activists and researchers on these topics drc you mentioned afghanistan brazil many parts of latin america my first novel was about the civil war in guatemala where i had a chance to to live and work with some amazing activists as well And that, you know, while my day job has been writing reports and training materials and engaging with activists, you know, on on what can we do to achieve the social change that we desire, um, and it's, you know, it is exhausting, it is emotionally wearing. And fiction was a place to kind of tell um, fictional accounts of, of amazing people that I've met, and also a place to channel um, you know, just thinking about men and our mistakes and our flaws um, and our deep emotions that we don't tend to express all that much. And so, yeah, fiction writing, particularly during jet lag moments stuck in hotels and airports and electricity out in a guest room in Goma uh, that, you know, where I have to flee two days later, you know, it's just this moment of either I'm going to drink too much and cause my body some harm or I'm going to try to channel these voices into some compelling stories. And I've had the luck of a publisher based um, in the Netherlands that's liked my stuff and has worked with me to turn it into, I, I hope, respectable um, fiction that's gotten some some fun mm-hmm. attention. It, but it, for me, it's therapeutic and it's kind of also fun and you don't have to use footnotes. Um, <laughs> and I don't have to do any PowerPoints from it and I just get to kind of, you know, uh, yeah, it's a, it's it, it's been fun, and it's and it's a fun way to also engage in conversations about these topics, without having to you know step into all of our, the politics of it, the, which I do and love and will continue doing. But it just it's like uh, it's like putting in a different you know going from whatever being a mathematician to a musician or something. Um,
0: and on that note, we we thought it might be nice to ask you if you wanted to just read out a, a short passage from one of your novels i don't know if you want to introduce that yourself or, or do you just want to sure. read um what you've
2: i just happen to got. have one of them in hand here oh that's great oh, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah museum just a you know museum of lost love is inspired by a real life museum in zagreb called the museum of broken relationships it's been around for a i've been there it's amazing right <laughs>
0: i mean i've mean, I been there geographically
2: you've, okay you've, <laughs>
0: I'm not sure. I've probably been there metaphorically I was as well. Say, but hey. if
2: I, I I don't really trust somebody who's not had a breakup. If you've never either had your heart broken or been the harm causer of breaking someone's heart, I kind of feel like it's an important human milestone. And that's where the book came out of that. That museum is, a, it's, a, you know, objects of love gone wrong and letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the chance to visit it after I had done some work with, um, doing work with uh, you know, young men affected by the conflict. A few of them ex-combatants, or their fathers, or others in their family ex-combatants. I was from the Serb enclave of Bosnia to Sarajevo and back, traveling with a with an ex-combatant, trying to make sense of what was going on there and the masculinities and the backdrop. And at the end of that trip, they took me to this museum, and I went the next day on my own, and I was just intrigued by. And of course, I did a you know, a social scientist reading of what it was. It was mostly men doing women wrong. Um, mm. And it was mostly all the stuff that men are so clumsy about and, and harm creating, you know, in, in relationships. And, uh, you know, just as some of us who should get therapy, you know, we start to have voices in our head <laughs> telling us, oh my God, there's a character here from Brazil and there's one here from who's a veteran from the Afghan war In Texas and he's going to be in the story and there's a couple of folks in the backdrop of uh, the former Yugoslavia that are going to be in my head too and then somebody I met a Bosnian you know refugee to Chicago who I met years before a version of him is going to be here and lo and behold you know a a year and a half later there's about 300 pages and I have a published book (laughs) um, which I got to launch at the museum which was really fun that was really fun Um, so there's a there's a moment when the two couples who are protagonists are uh, visiting the museum, one of them is goran he is uh, he's that bosnian refugee that i that I mentioned his family um, he's a Bosnian Serb his family moved to the u s at the beginning of the war. He finds an object in the museum that he didn't know was there from a girl that he had met in the transit camp when his family was getting out and uh, he's quite moved by this and he has gone there with his American girlfriend whose name is katya and uh, they, Katya is looking at the museum while she sees Goran crying, looking at this exhibit from the girl that he met 20-some um, years before. And um, so there's a moment when this is in, this is the, the narrator in Katya's head. Um, and Katya, you know at the beginning of the book that Katya and Gorin had a, you know, they, they were together, they thought they were going to be together as a couple, but they're not when the book starts. And so Katya is looking back, remembering the moment that Goran found that object in the museum. And she says this, with each day away from Goran, she was learning this. The normal state of lovers, of couples, is not together. Together is a transient state. The normal state of things is as much about ending and leaving as it is about beginning and staying. The normal state of love is living with the possibility that everything can, at a moment's notice, come tumbling down. We impossibly walk for some amount of time in the same pages, in the same narrative, and we deny with every breath the possibility, indeed the likelihood, that the arc of the story bends toward being alone. Every city, Katya thought, every village, every neighborhood should have a museum like the one Goren had taken her to visit more than a year ago. Children should be given classes in how to break up and move on, how to mourn the sudden loss of all-encompassing love or the end of an intense, fleeting affair and carry on with dignity. How to let someone get that close, know you that way and let them go, taking with them your secret words and bedroom stories and those private little cries and tremors. How to walk into the story with kindness and walk out of it without drawing blood. Mm. By children, I mean boys, (laughs) particularly, (laughs) and men to, yeah, how do we deal with with loss? I got some interesting. letters and emails from some men talking about how difficult it was for them to talk about love and loss um, when the, the book made some press in the UK and the US. Anyway um, mm. no, That was great. Thanks yeah. so much,
0: Gary. Uh, we're going to have to love you and leave you, I'm afraid but <laughs> <laughs> in a different way okay. in the nicest possible way. I'll write but about uh, you, Sandy.
2: I will, I, will, oh, it will, I will put it in the next story. I'll look forward to myself <laughs> okay. in the next novel uh,
0: So <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's been great, great spending time with you. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. I and mean, It's a real sort yes. of uh, ride that we've been on through all the work that yeah. you've been doing over the years. So thank you for
2: that. And it's yeah. been, a, yeah, it's, oh, it's been a been... pleasure working with you two on several things, including the your very thoughtful work on COVID and masculinities. And oh, thank you. Um, you two oh, thank have been, you. yeah, been inspirations to me and our team as well. So we appreciate oh. that.
1: Well, thank you. Oh, no, I'm going to go away and read some of your. Yeah, pieces. all right. They sound amazing. Yeah. give so. them. It's
2: it's early for Christmas. You can buy lots of them and give yeah. them away as Christmas presents. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank
0: Thanks so, so much, much Gary. Time. Thanks
2: for having me. Bye
0: now. Well, wow, what a
1: fascinating, wide-ranging and informative conversation that was with Gary. I mean, it's so impressive, all of the work he's done and Equimundo have done over the years, and I'm really am kind of impressed by the, the writing he's doing. Can you tell us a little bit, though, Sandy? I'm really intrigued about the Museum of Broken Relationships. What, was your, what, what were you doing <laughs> oh, there steam. and what happened? <laughs> uh,
0: um, well, after, after all those, you know, fascinating things that Gary was telling us about, you, you chose to pick out the Museum of Broken Relationships. I I wonder why. But um, yeah, it was extraordinary, really. I mean, the museum's in Zagreb, as I think Gary said. We happened to be in Zagreb for a Men Engage meeting at one point. And, uh, you know, so all the sort of participants at the meeting trundle along to the Museum of Broken Relationships and came out again, well, broken themselves in various ways, I think. I mean, to to be, you know, serious about it i mean you know there's some amazing stuff there all the sort of uh, mementos mm. that that people have left you know the yeah. the letters the artifacts the i don't know the the shoes the you know all kinds of stuff really and then a little description of um what happened and right. uh all the sort of uh all the emotions you can imagine just sort of tumbling yeah. out of people really in their yeah. in their writing about why they submitted a particular uh item to the museum you know so yeah. uh it's it's an extraordinary idea really um I, I even seen a it's been on tour and b yeah. they're asking for contributions so if there's any of you listening out there who think yeah yeah i'm i'm up for that then um do some sub- do submit whatever you have uh but don't blame us if it appears uh, on the shelves but um and i I
1: suppose there is a serious point there as well, isn't there, which Gary kind of alluded to about how, you know, perhaps we don't talk enough about relationships and how men kind of deal with those and the the difficulties you know a lot of men might have especially if a relationship comes to an end for example and how to deal with the kind of emotional fallout of that which is very difficult for anybody Um, especially yeah if you're not necessarily encouraged to talk
0: to other people about what's going on um, in your life. Yes I, I agree Stephen and of course Gary's work provides some inspiration for us in thinking about how to tackle address confront some of these serious issues that we're all faced with Um, But I think that's it for today, isn't it, Stephen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for listening, as always. uh, We'll be back again soon with another episode. And in the meantime, if you haven't already, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. Get in touch with us if you've got questions or comments at nowamen at gmail.com. But for now, uh, take care and speak to you again soon.
0: Bye now.